All right. Well, uh, we are in Matthew 26, and we're going to finish up this chapter today. So Matthew 26, if you guys could turn your Bibles there, uh, verse 47, where we're going to be starting from, all the way through 75. So we've got a lot to tackle, almost 30 verses. Matthew 26, 47 through 75. It says, and even as Jesus said, sorry, and even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had, sent out, they, were, they had been sent out by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled and describe what must happen now? Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you would come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But this is happening to fulfill the word of the prophets as recorded in scriptures. At that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. 57. Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed them at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and he sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. Inside, the leading priest and the entire high council were finding, were trying to find witness to, sorry, were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes to show his horror. And he said, Blasphemy! Why do we need any other witnesses? Have you all heard this blasphemy? What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. And they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists and some slapped him, jeering, Prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? 
Meanwhile, Jesus was sitting outside in the, sorry, meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over to him and said, You were one of those with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, You must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore, A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away and wept bitterly. Uh, I want to ask you guys a question. So raise your hand if you have children. Okay, now raise your hand if you are uh, a child. If you're an offspring of someone. Okay, so everyone is on the same page here. So to the first ones who raised their hands, uh, have you ever had trouble with your kids listening to instructions? Only a couple of you. Wow, a lot of obedient children here. Wonderful. Uh, and to all the other ones who didn't answer, I'm guessing that you were that kid that didn't listen. That's just what I'll assume in your silence. Listening is possibly the, the most underrated skill. And I would say maybe only second to doing. Or in other words, like, what good does it do to listen if there's no action? If nothing happens after, have we really learned? If there's no action, if there's no change, have we really learned? So let me tell you a story to illustrate it from my perspective. Because um, I have this issue of, I think, not, not really learning, not learning from my mistakes or not listening. Uh, I was at my in-law's house, and at my in-law's house, there's this, um, they have the stove, and above the stove, they have a vent, and there's a hood over the vent, and it's this brushed steel, and it has pointy corners. Well, I was underneath that hood. It's about six foot, so it's right, right out of my line of vision. It's just right there. Um, and I'm cleaning the stove or doing something around the stove, and all I remember is that I picked my head up, and bam, right at the top of my head, I got hit by the corner of that, that, uh, that hood. And as I'm holding my head, I turn around, and I see my father-in-law. Um, and at this point, I'm not married, so I'm still trying to impress uh, my wife's parents. And I want them to know that I'm a responsible guy. I'm not some clumsy klutz. And I'm holding my head, and he looks at me, and he says, he kind of grinned. He said, yeah, I did that once. He said, you know what? You'll never do it again. Once it happens to you once, you'll never do it again. You learn your lesson. And I'm sitting there feeling the pain, and I agree with him. I said, yeah, you're right. I'm like, I'm never going to do that again, of course. Well, two months later, I'm at their house, and I was probably doing something similar uh, around that same area. And sure enough, at the same corner, I lift my head up, and bam, right at the same spot. And I'm holding my head. I'm like, oh, please, no one be looking. And I turn around, and they're all watching TV. No one saw it, and no one heard it. I'm like, oh, praise God. <laughs> no one had to see that. And uh, maybe that's the first time you've heard of that. Um, and I'm holding my head there, and maybe this is being a little dramatic, but I had this 
Uh, the only thing I could describe it as is an existential crisis. I'm holding my head there. I'm like, is this who I am? Do I just forget all the time? Am I a klutz? What's wrong with me that I had such a resolve, such certainty that I wouldn't do this again? I looked at that corner the first time I hit it, and I was like, I know where it is. I'm never going to do it again. But sure enough, only a couple months later, I did the exact same thing. And the reason I was having that crisis is because it's not the first time something like that's happened to me. I've resolved not to do it again. I've resolved to listen, to learn from my mistakes. Yet, I fell again, hit my head again. Um, I think that this happens to uh, you guys as well. I think that far too often, our actions seem to deny what we believe. Or rather, in our text, what we see uh, from, I would say, Peter's experience is that what he says he believes, his actions don't follow. Jesus gave him ample warning, which we'll look at in a moment, of what he would do and how he would deny him, and he didn't heed to those. And so, instead, he did what he did not, uh, his actions betrayed what he believed. So, a little bit of context here for us. You guys remember last week, I thought Chris, he gave this analogy of describing the word Gethsemane, it means oil press. And so when Jesus was there in Gethsemane praying, it was as if there was this pressure, this, this pressing that was either going to result in Jesus submitting to God's will or avoiding what he was being shown what would happen to him. In other words, Jesus was realizing after every single time he would go to pray what God was asking of him. He was realizing the fullness of the suffering, the pain, what he was going to have to do. And every single time, it seems he goes back and he draws closer to the Father, even though he feel and already experience some of that pain and the agony he's going to go through, he draws closer to the Father and closer to the Father and closer to the Father as he is submitting and surrendering his own will and what he wants to do, submitting it to the Father and saying, your will be done, but not my own. Meanwhile, Peter and the other two disciples, John, John and James, which Jesus brought up there with them, are sleeping. Jesus has already predicted to Peter that not only will you, like all the others, walk away from me, you're going to deny me three times. And he gives him an indicator of the rooster's crow. And of course, Peter denied that. He said, no, I would never do that. I would die before I did that. But three times, Jesus, in some way, is preparing, as he's going through this prayer with the Father, he's preparing Peter for the temptation that's about to come upon him. Jesus doesn't want Peter to deny him. And he goes to Peter and he says, Peter, the flesh is weak, but, or sorry, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, he wants to point out to Peter that what he's about to go through, he needs the Father's help. He needs to go to the Father. He needs to pray to the Father. He needs to be on guard so that the temptation will not take him. And it reminds me of a passage where I'm sure that Peter, this must have come up in his head at some point, in, in, in the surrounding events where he remembers as Jesus gave him the ability to walk on water towards him. And Peter's eyes were locked on Jesus and as long as they were locked on Jesus, he was able to walk on water 
But it says the moment that he started to doubt, he turned away, he looked at the waves, he took his eyes off Jesus, what happened? He started to sink, he started to drown. The moment he took his eyes off Christ. I'm sure these moments are going back through his head. Another passage this reminds me of, and this is kind of the opposite of what's happening in Gethsemane. All the, um, I don't know if you guys remember, but there's this moment where the disciples are in utter crisis. They think they're about to die. The storm has come and taken them, and the boat's probably filling with water. They're doing anything they can to survive. They're in peril. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. You see, if I get to look at this kind of from an outsider perspective, I would say, man, I'd just sit right down and take a nap with Jesus. Because I know if he's, if he's sitting there sleeping, then it's all right. It's all going to be good. But the reverse is happening here in Gethsemane. Jesus is not resting. He knows what's about to come. And he's trying to warn his disciples to be on guard so that they can avoid the temptation that's coming. He's warning them. And three times he does this to no avail because they fall asleep over and over again. And if you remember nothing from this intro, I hope that you remember, look to Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him and delight in him. And if we remember to do that, if we can focus on just that, I think we'll be all right. Jesus was a teacher for you teachers out there. You understand. He taught not only in word but in deed. The way he did things, he was modeling all the time. He would pray when he was fatigued. He would go to the Father. He would run to the Father when he was, after a long day of teaching, of healing, he would go and run to the Father. He didn't shield the disciples from this. They knew where he was going. They knew what he was doing. He invited them alongside with him to do so. When he went into the wilderness in the inauguration of his ministry, what did Jesus use to have a defense against the, the enemy? He relied on God and his word alone. That's how you defeat temptation. That's how you have triumph over Satan's schemes. By running to the Father. And so I'll give us our main point today. Uh, and it's very simple. It's one thing so that with all these verses that we have to focus on and all the different characters we have, we still have one central focus point, which is Christ. And so our main point today is Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. Do not take them off. Can we keep our eyes on Christ throughout this passage too? So I've divided up the passage into three sections, and you'll notice your Bible does as well. The first section I'll call the betrayal. 47 through 56 lists what happens when Judas um, betrays Jesus. And following that is what I'll call the constructing of a case against Jesus. Constructing of a case against Jesus. And then the final one, which I'm sure you guys are more aware or more familiar with, is the denial of Jesus by Peter. Okay, so let's jump right into the first section, starting with verse uh, 47, the betrayal. Forty-seven says, and even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men, armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. 
the traitor, Judas, had, been, had given them a prearranged signal, saying, you will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing his ear off. Let's stop right there for a moment. First of all, how does Judas know where Jesus is going to be? Because if we remember, he left at the Passover table. Judas left beforehand. But once again, Jesus was a man of example, and he often would take them to this, the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane, and he would take his disciples to go and pray with him. This was a rendezvous spot for them. Judas would have known where Jesus was going. And secondly, um, the specifics of the greeting, this prearranged greeting and kiss that he gives them. Part of the reason why this was necessary for Judas to tell them um, was because not only was it dark, but some of the people in that crowd might not have actually known exactly what Jesus looked like or might not have been able to distinguish him apart from someone like Peter, who is also a Galilean. And so he's giving them these clues, these, these tips, that this is who it is. Imagine him greeting him, Rabbi, this is the one. Something like that. But the interesting part is that Jesus is not hiding it's not like Jesus is trying to avoid being arrested because at this point, after Gethsemane, in some ways, Jesus has completely accepted what's going to happen to him. He's completely accepted what is going to happen. What the Father's will is, I will do it. And so he's not hiding. And so his words, when he, say, when he says, um, go ahead and do what you have come to do, it, it, it's almost like he's, he's ready. He's ready doesn't want to wait any longer. Verse 50, he tells Judas, do what you have come to do. And in the Gospel of John, we get some extra details. So in John 13, uh, 27, this is beforehand, actually, um, when they are at the table, John, the Gospel of John writes that Satan entered Judas after he had eaten the bread, and Jesus told him to Judas, Hurry and do what you are going to do. It seems like Jesus is rushing this along, and the only way that I can kind of grapple with what's going on here is this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, I don't understand the fully God part. I can't. But the fully man part, the only way I can understand what maybe Jesus is experiencing is this. You guys know what I mean when I say just rip the Band-Aid off, Right? Taking a Band-Aid off is going to hurt no matter what. Taking a Band-Aid off, you already know, when I take off the Band-Aid, it's going to cause me pain. So who here rips the Band-Aid off really slowly? Who here savors? Okay, well, Ephraim, that's interesting. We'll talk about that later. Um, who here rips it off slowly? No, we don't do that because we know it's going to hurt either way. Why prolong it? Why make that pain last even longer? So the only way I can think of what Jesus is doing is... In some ways, his words of saying, go ahead and do it. Just go and get, get it over with. He's saying, just, he wants to rip off the band-aid. He's already experienced 
or at least been told by the Father in Gethsemane what's going to happen to him. We've seen from his tears, he's already, he has, he knows what's going to happen. He knows it's going to be painful. And so he says, on with it. Let's go. Let's get it over with. Uh, 51 through, uh, pick it up at 51. Uh, it says that, let me find my place here really quick. One of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing his ear off. Jesus said, put away the sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Now, I'll preface this first. As we're studying through these historical passages, we could jump over often, and I will a little bit today, we could jump over to um, the Gospel of John or Mark or Luke, and we can get extra details about what's going on, but I think maybe it's a little more profitable that we try to focus more on what Matthew has to write. And the reason is this, because each of those authors, each of the Gospel authors, they have a different goal into why they're writing. In other words, their audience is different. So they're writing to the audience, and we want to study here what Matthew has to write. And if we remember, Matthew is, he is, he keenly, and he often makes sure that we know that Jesus is truly 100% the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And how he does this is if there's ever an opportunity for him to point out that an Old Testament prophecy can be fulfilled in the actions or words of Jesus, he does so. So he takes words from the Old Testament and he says, here is proof that Jesus is exactly who was prophesied. This is truly the Messiah. He's not just a false prophet. He's not just another wise person. He is actually the Messiah, the one who was promised to come all the way back in Genesis. This is Matthew's goal. This is one of his main goals as a writer is to point out all these, all these places where prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And so with that being the, the focus in what Matthew is writing here, um, it becomes clear that we don't need to know. What we know from John is that Peter was the one who cut off the ear. I think we learn from, from either Matthew or Luke that Jesus, in fact, takes that ear and puts it back on and heals the man. But these are details that we don't see in Matthew. All we get from Matthew is that he rebukes the disciple who cuts off the ear, and then he says... Basically this, with this analogy of, I could call upon all these angels to come and protect us. What he's really saying, because the number is huge, the legions, it could be 6,000, so many of these angels, and we already know from different instances that even one angel is powerful enough to take out a whole army. So the number, in some ways, is, is insignificant because it's so, it's significant because it's so much, but really what Jesus is saying here is this. Peter, you still don't understand. You're still getting in my way because you don't understand that what God wills, I want to do. In Gethsemane, he already surrendered everything to God and said, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Peter keeps getting in the way. This happened before. Matthew chapter 16, 
um, just 10 chapters back, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. He's saying again, Peter, stop getting in the way of the Father's will. I could at any point escape this arrest, but instead I'm going to let them take me in. Because Jesus realizes it's time. The Father has prepared him for it. He's ready for it. He is fully committed. Jesus is completely, fully willing to go through the crucifixion. He is fully throwing himself on God. He's fully willing. Uh, picking up here at verse 55. He says, Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you would come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you just arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. And he says again, this has happened to fulfill the words of the prophets. As recorded in scripture, and at that point it says all the disciples deserted him and fled. Jesus, in some way, he's, he's exposing the illegitimacy of the arrest. He's saying, you guys are coming in secrecy at night, undercover, you guys are coming to take me away this way. Why, didn't you, why did you not do it when I was teaching daily in the temple in front of everyone? But if we look back, we already see that the high priest, the leaders, and, and the members of the Sanhedrin, they, they have already figured out how they're going to do this and get away with it. And so if I, you don't have to turn there, but uh, the beginning of the chapter, verse 3, it says at the same time, the leading priests and the elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas and the high priest, and they were plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. So this is premeditated, it's planned, they already are decided we want to catch him, we want to kill him, and we don't want any commotion or people telling us we can't. So they go and find him in the middle of the night and take him. On to our second section now as they construct this case against Jesus. Uh, picking up here, verse 57. Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed at him at a distance, and he came to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in, and he sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council, they were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so that they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, Two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the priest, high priest stood up and he said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, he's trying to put him under oath, Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Let's pause right there. Once again, we already know that the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, they are, they're willing 
to bypass um, a, a proper witness, a factually correct witness. All they're looking for is to prove that some way he is guilty. And what they need to do for that to happen is two witnesses. They don't even care whether it's false witnesses. They just need two witnesses that when they cross-check them, cross-analyze their stories, it all checks out. That's all they're looking for. Because once they've done that, and we'll see in following chapters, they're able to take it to the Roman perfect, and then they can actually go through with the case that could lead to murder, or sorry, lead to the crucifixion. They themselves are not able to do it, but they want to at least be able, they have enough evidence at this point to say, I think he's guilty, I think he's there, but they want to have, uh, they want to go through the, the proper um, way of doing it. But as we know, they are already predisposed to find him guilty. And so we know this is already an illegitimate trial, per se. They're willing to take two false witnesses. Uh, and as long as their stories concur, then we're good to go. Uh, we realize if, if we were to read John uh, 2.19, I'll let you guys read it on your own. 2.19 through 21, you can tell that this is an illegitimate um, claim about Jesus because the words are twisted. They've twisted his words. But nevertheless, we already know that Jesus, he doesn't contest the accusation because just like when they took him in Gethsemane, he's not refusing arrest anymore. Jesus previously in his ministry has avoided arrest because it was not God's timing yet. But now that it is, he is basically saying he's allowing these events to take their course, saying, on with it, let's go. So before moving into verse uh, 64, I want to point out really quick in verse 58, it's likely that meanwhile means while Peter was in the courtyard and Jesus is being tried for things he never really said, meanwhile Peter is likely being asked very factually true questions of were you with Jesus, do you know Jesus? And while Jesus is saying Yes, to things that didn't even happen, Peter is denying things that truly did. See, already here, Matthew is trying to create this contrast. We really could. We could focus completely, this whole message, if we wanted to, focus on Peter and his flaws and where he went wrong. But I think what Matthew's trying to do is contrast Peter and Jesus and say, look at Jesus. Look at him. He fulfills prophecy that was written in Isaiah 50, 53. He's fulfilling the prophecy that he would be the suffering servant, that like a lamb he would be silent and willing to go all the way, innocently dying for our sins. Meanwhile, Peter is doing quite the opposite. So let's pick up here. Is it verse 64? It says, Jesus replied. Jesus replied to the... Uh, the question that was posed, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? He says, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand, coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, in some ways, this is the climax of it because once again, Jesus is he's completely sealing the case. They didn't even need him to say that much be able to prove him guilty. All he had to say was yes. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, 
with the, with the added information he ties there at the end, basically it's that they feel they have, the leaders feel that they have some sort of authority and control over what's going on, but Jesus already knew what they were thinking, what they were going to do. And so in fact, he's saying, though you think you have some sort of temporary authority over me, just so you know who I'm with. And he also reiterates the way he wants to be addressed, his preferred title, the Son of Man instead of Messiah, the Son of Man. And he says that you will see him coming on the clouds. And this is a reference, uh, once again, I'll let you guys read this later, a reference from Daniel chapter 7. And it's not talking about when Jesus' second coming, it's really talking about when Jesus is going to restore, um, when God is going to restore the power and authority to Jesus in just a couple short days from now when he is resurrected from the grave. And so amongst all this chaos and, and convolution in this passage, um, think about all the things that are going on, the betrayal, the false accusations, Peter's denial, Matthew, the author of this book wants to tell us and he wants to point out that Jesus, he uses these words of authority to basically say this, that all this is happening is not in vain. Jesus being arrested in some ways to a lot of the disciples was this, oh, oh no, I thought he was really the king, really the Messiah. I thought he was the one who was going to deliver us and he's just been arrested and as we'll read in later chapters, it continues to escalate where he doesn't stand up for himself. He's submitted fully to the will of the Father. He's made it very clear to his disciples. But what Jesus is doing here is saying, Elson, I do have authority given to me by the Father. And you will see it, just not now. So Jesus, once again, submits his will to the Father and lets things take their course. But to that I would say, praise God, Praise God that Jesus was willing to go all the way. It's for that reason that we have salvation. There's no other way for us to have a relationship with the Father if Jesus doesn't do this. As tragic as it is, this whole story and the chapters following, it's an incredible thing. And I want us to keep focused, keep our eyes on Christ, because what he is doing is incredible. What he is doing is amazing. The verses following... Um, what Jesus said, both the, the screams and cries of blasphemy, the tearing of the robe from the high priest, and the physical beatings that follow, all of this, for one, is not a sanctioned thing uh, in a trial like this by the members of the Sanhedrin. This was out of character for a high priest to do this, but he's really just trying to say, it's blasphemy. In other words, they got even more than they wanted. They just wanted to catch Jesus with two witnesses that said he did something that, def that said he was Jesus. But they, Jesus gave them even more. And so they get to accuse him of blasphemy. But alas, Jesus is willing to submit to the Father, saying that prophecy is fulfilled, uh, even to the point of these beatings, this abuse that is showed towards Jesus, um, was predicted all the way back in Isaiah, that Jesus, like a lamb, would silently, like a lamb, would go to be sheared Silently, Jesus would go to die for our sins. Innocently as he was, he would die for our sins. Jesus is fully willing, fully ready to undergo all that God um, has planned at this point. 
Now to our third and final section, the one you guys are likely more familiar with. Um, starting with verse 69, it says, Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, You were one of those with Jesus, the Galilean. Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and they said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away, and he wept bitterly. So once again, if we're to keep with our main point, and keep our focus, and keep our eyes on Christ, then the contrast that Matthew is trying to make here should become more evidently clear to us. I think it's easy for us to look at Peter and say, how can we dissect what he's doing here and how can we learn from it? But I think Matthew has something else in mind as he's constantly setting up this contrast between what Jesus is willing to do and what Peter does. Three times we know from Gethsemane, Jesus asked Peter to pray. He asked him to keep watch, to not fall into temptation. And often when I read the words that says, though the spirit is willing, but the, the body is weak, I used to think it kind of meant that, that, uh, that Peter, was, his eyes were heavy, and that he just couldn't stay awake, and that was what Jesus was talking about when he said the body is weak or the flesh is weak. While it might mean that to some degree, I think what it's really talking about is Jesus wants Peter to be prepared and on guard against temptation. Jesus does not wish that Peter would disassociate himself with him. In fact, what's kind of sad is what we see is a lot like the members of the Sanhedrin who are crying out blasphemy, ripping their clothes, and beating Jesus. In some way, what they're doing is they're trying to disassociate themselves with what was just said. They're trying to put barriers in between what has happened because to them, it's utter blasphemy. And in the same way, Peter, quite opposite of what Jesus did at Gethsemane, went closer and closer, he pressed in to what the Lord, to what God had for him, to what the Father had for him. He got closer and closer to God. What Peter is doing is he's actually physically even walking away further from Jesus every time he denies. He starts out in the courtyard right beside him, and he starts to back away slowly. And every denial gets even more intense to the point where he is casting a curse upon himself. Matthew's, this is not by mistake. Matthew is doing this intentionally so that we see a huge divide, a massive contrast in between who Jesus is and what he's willing to do and Peter. Peter, at this point, I'm sure also is remembering once again the time he took his eyes off Christ Peter's reminiscing the words of Christ 
and it causes him to weep bitterly because what Peter has done is he's taken his gaze off Christ. He's not listened to what Jesus said. The warnings, all the signs were there, but Peter was not on guard. He's back in Gethsemane, he chose instead of really pressing into what Jesus wanted, which is him to be uh, in communion with the Father, run to the Father, he backed away. So I believe that if we are to fix our eyes upon Christ, if we can do that, if we fix our eyes on him and we don't take him off, then not only will we learn to run to the Father like Jesus often does, but that we'll also find joy in being used by God I think we'll find great joy in the way that God wants to use our lives for his purpose, for his will. If we are able to go to the Father and say, I surrender everything that I want. I really just want what you want from me. Your will be done, not my own. If we can look at Jesus and take what he has given us as an example, I think there's so much joy in that. And I think the way that it says God delights in his son and he delights in the Father that kind of joy and love, I think we'll experience that to the point where we're not so focused on ourselves and the things and the issues that come up in our days, but that we, if we fix our eyes on Christ, we'll be able to see all the different ways that God wants to use us. I believe that. Do you guys believe that? I do think Peter is an example of what we often end up doing, but I think Christ, if we can look at Christ and exalt him, and delight in what he did, I think that's a way better outcome than trying to observe where Peter went wrong. Let's just look at Christ and what he did well and ask God to use us 